0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. In this episode, we are going to be covering chapters 75 and 76. Like with previous chapters, chapter 76 is only a couple pages long, so I'm going to go ahead and cover that (laughs) this week as well. But first, let's do a quick recap of chapter 74. Stu and Kojak are able to feel it when the bomb goes off in Vegas. Stu manages to climb to the top of the washout with Kojak's help, and he can see the mushroom cloud in the distance. He knows now that Glenn, Larry, and Ralph are gone. Fortunately for Stu, Tom is headed east and finds Stu on the side of the highway. Together, they're able to get supplies that they need to start making their way back home, including getting an old beat-up Plymouth to work. They make it to a hotel before Stu passes out from the fever he's suffering from, and Tom helps him get into the Utah hotel. Stu is delirious and not doing so well. That night, Tom wakes up in a trance and leaves the hotel while Stu sleeps. Chapter 75 begins with Tom and Nick walking down an empty sidewalk together. Nick tells Tom how he almost died and showed him the wound left behind by the wayward bullet that was fired when Ray Booth tried to kill him back in Shoyo. Nick uses this to explain to Tom about how the wound got infected. He says it wasn't deep, but it got infected. Infection means that the bad germs got into it. Infection's the most dangerous thing there is, Tom. Infection was what made the superflu germ kill all the people. And infection is what made people want to make the germ in the first place. An infection of the mind. Stu has an infection now, which of course scares Tom. Nick tells him that Stu has pneumonia in both lungs, and while there are things Tom can do for him, Stu will almost certainly still die, and Tom needs to be prepared for that. Nick says that if he dies, you and Kojak have to go on. You have to get back to Boulder and tell them that you saw the hand of God in the desert. If it is God's will, Stu will go with you, in time. If it's God's will that Stu should die, then he will, like me. Nick showed Tom his leg for a reason, because there are pills that can help fight the infection. Tom looked around and was surprised to see they were no longer on the street. They were in a dark store, a drugstore. A wheelchair was suspended on piano wire from the ceiling, like a ghostly mechanical corpse. Nick is behind the counter now, wearing a white coat like a pharmacist, and he puts small bottles of pills on the counter, explaining what they are and what they can do. Tom isn't sure he can remember any of this, and he begins to cry. Nick leaned forward, his arm swung. There was no slap. Again, there was only that feeling that Nick was smoke, which had passed around him, and possibly through him. But Tom felt his head rock back all the same. Something in his head seemed to snap. Nick tells Tom it's time to be a man. He instructs Tom on what to do with the pills and getting Stu up on his leg again to walk. Tom promises he'll try, and Nick tells him, you do your best, Tom, that's all. Nick was gone. Tom woke up and found himself standing in the deserted drugstore by the prescription counter. Standing on the glass were four bottles of pills. Tom stared at them for a long time and then gathered them up. Back at the hotel, Tom wakes up Stu to get him to take the pills. He explains that Nick gave them to him. He explains that Stu has to get up and walk around, but Stu is feeling a bit sulky about his situation. Tom does not care. He hauls Stu up to his feet to get him moving around, despite Stu's fever, all the while calling out, Please God. Please God. Boulder had never seemed so far away as it did on that dismal morning. Stu's struggle with pneumonia lasts two weeks. He drinks plenty of juice. He messed himself like a baby, and like a baby, his stools were yellow and loose and totally blameless. Tom kept him clean. Tom dragged him around the lobby of the Utah Hotel, and Tom waited for the night when he would wake, not because Stu was raving in his sleep, but because his labored breathing had finally ceased. On October 13th, Tom woke from a day's nap in one of the lobby chairs to find Stu sitting up and looking around. Tom, he whispered, I'm alive. By October 18th, Stu's strength had begun to come back. He used crutches from the drugstore to get around. There was a steady maddening itch from his broken leg as the bones began to knit themselves together. On October 20th, he went outside for the first time, bundled up in thermal underwear and a huge sheepskin coat. Stu isn't quite sure when it will be safe for them to leave, but on October 28th, he realizes that if they don't leave soon, they'll be stuck in the hotel for the entire winter. So the next day, they drove the Plymouth down to the gas station on the outskirts of town. Pausing often to rest and using Tom for the heavy work, they changed the balding back tires for a pair of studded snows. Stu considered taking a four-wheel drive and had finally decided, quite irrationally, that they should stick with their luck. Tom finished the operation by loading four 50-pound bags of sand into the Plymouth's trunk. They left Green River on Halloween and headed east. By November 2nd, they reached Grand Junction, and they stopped at a Holiday Inn. It begins to snow pretty fiercely by then, and Tom realizes that they're snowed in. Stu thinks that they may be there until the spring, but he assures Tom that time will pass. Even then, he was not sure either of them would be able to wait that long. It's in the Holiday Inn that Stu has a terrible nightmare, one that he's had before. The Franny dream. The nightmare. It was always the same. Franny in pain, her face bathed in sweat. Richardson was between her legs, and Lori Constable was standing nearby to assist him. Fran's feet were up in stainless steel stirrups. Push Franny. Bear down. You're doing fine but it was a breech birth. Franny is losing a lot of blood, and this is when Stu wakes up. It's an anxiety dream, that's all. You got this typical macho idea that things won't come right if you're not there. Well, back it up, Stuart. She's fine. Not all dreams come true. But so many dreams had come true, at least that year, and this recurring dream would not leave him. They had been in the Holiday Inn for four weeks, trying to keep themselves busy. Stu found a medium-sized generator, using it to surprise Tom with a picture projector and some movies. Stu also built over 20 car models, while Tom created a terrain-contoured landscape, covering nearly half of the floor in the Holiday Inn main function room. They were keeping busy, but Stu felt like his leg was in better condition than he would have hoped. But if they took it slow and easy, maybe they could start for Boulder instead of waiting until spring. Over breakfast, Stu asks Tom if he's willing to take the chance to head home sooner than they planned. Tom takes a moment but then says, laws, everything's a chance, isn't it? It was decided as simply as that. They left Grand Junction on the last day of November. Stu didn't need to teach Tom the fundamentals of snowmobiling. He found a monster machine in the Colorado Highway Department shed not a mile from the Holiday Inn, It had an oversized engine, a fairing to cut the worst of the wind, and most important of all, it had been modified to include a large open storage compartment. It had at once no doubt held all manner of emergency gear. The compartment was big enough to take one good-sized dog comfortably. With the number of shops in town devoted to outdoor activities, they had no trouble at all in outfitting themselves for the trip, even though the superflu had struck at the beginning of summer. They took light shelter halves and heavy sleeping bags. A pair of cross-country skis each, although the thought of trying to teach Tom the fundamentals of cross-country skiing made Stu's blood run cold. A big Coleman gas stove, lamps, gas bottles, extra batteries, concentrated foods, and a big grand rifle with a scope. Thankfully, the woods were crawling with game, and Stu was able to shoot a rather large buck Eating some of the meat for supper and cooking and storing the rest for the journey. That night, Stu's dream about Franny changed. He was in the delivery room again. There was blood everywhere. The sleeves of the white coat he was wearing were stiff and tacky with it. The sheet covering Franny was soaked through, and still she shrieked. It's coming, George panted. Its time has come round at last, Franny. It's waiting to be born, so push. And it came. It came in a final freshet of blood. George pulled the infant free, grasping the hips because it had come feet first. Lori began to scream. Stainless steel instruments sprayed everywhere. Because it was a wolf with a furious grinning human face. His face, it was Flagg. His time had come round again. But he was not dead. Not dead yet. He still walked the world. Franny had given birth to Randall Flagg. Five good days of weather took them to rifle. But then it snowed for three more days. On December 10th, they dug themselves out and continued on. Now they had avalanches to worry about. On December 22nd, Stu ran the snowmobile off the highway embankment. At one moment, they were running along at a steady 10 miles an hour, safe and fine, spuming up clouds of snow behind them. Tom had just pointed out the small village below, silent as a 1980s stereopticon image with its single white church steeple and the undisturbed drifts up to the eaves of the houses. The next moment, the cowling of the snowmobile began to tilt forward. Stu had no time to rate the snowmobile. It pitched forward and pitched them off. Stu lost sight of Tom and Kojak. Cold snow up his nose. When he opened his mouth to shout, the snow went down his throat. Down the back of his coat. Tumbling, falling. Finally coming to rest in a deep white quilt of snow. Eventually, Kojak pops up from the snow and Stu asks him to find Tom. Kojak goes to a spot and barks, and Stu helps Tom get out of the snow. Tom felt as though he had been choking. Stu tells him it's all right, that they're going to be okay. They lay on top of the snow, getting their wind back. Stu put his arm around Tom's shoulders to still the big fellow's trembling. A distance away, gaining volume and then diminishing, was the rumbling cold sound of another avalanche. It took them the rest of the day to get the three-quarters of a mile to the town of Avon. They couldn't salvage the snowmobile. It was too far down the grade. The next morning, they got to work re-outfitting themselves. Stu considered waiting there until winter passed, but he quickly rejected the idea. The baby was due in early January, and Stu wanted to be there when it came. He wanted to see it with his own eyes that the baby would be okay. They found some used John Deere snowmobiles in Avon's dealership, and they got what they needed. Stu realized that the next day would be Christmas Eve. After telling Tom to get a fire going for the evening, he tells him that he has to run an errand. It's a surprise, of course, which excites Tom. And when he returns, Tom pesters him about the surprise for the next two or three hours. Stu kept a mum by the time they turned in. Tom had forgotten all about it. That night, Stu dreamt about Franny and her terrible wolf child that they had both died in childbirth. He heard George Richardson saying from a great distance, It's the flu. No more babies because of the flu. Pregnancy is death because of the flu. A chicken in every pot and a wolf in every womb because of the flu. We're all done. Mankind is done because of the flu. And from somewhere nearer, closing in, came the dark man's howling laughter. On Christmas Eve, they camped on top of the crust, 24 miles from Avon, not far from Silverthorne, in the throat of the Loveland Pass, the choked and buried Eisenhower Tunnel somewhere below and to the east. While they were waiting for dinner to warm up, Stu discovered an amazing thing. Idly using an axe to chop through the crust, his hand to dig out the loose powder beneath, he had discovered blue metal, only an arm's length below where they sat. He almost called Tom's attention to his find and then thought better of it. The thought that they were sitting less than two feet above a traffic jam less than two feet above God only knew how many dead bodies, was an unsettling one. On Christmas morning, Stu surprised Tom with a decorated tree. Well, decorated with silver icicles he found in the back room of the Avon 5 and 10. He also had three presents for Tom. It excites but upsets Tom, who didn't get Stu anything. But Stu insists that he had. He says, if you hadn't come along when you did, I would have died in that washout west of Green River. And if it hadn't been for you, Tom, I would have died of pneumonia or the flu or whatever it was back there in the Utah hotel. I don't know how you picked the right pills, if it was Nick or God or just plain old luck, but you did it. You got no sense calling yourself a dummy. If it hadn't been for you, I never would have seen this Christmas. I'm in your debt. The gifts for Tom are a small pinball machine, a sweatshirt that says I climbed Loveland Pass, and a silver medallion on a fine link silver chain. It has the number eight lying on its side, the Greek symbol for infinity. Stu says, I think maybe we're going to get to Boulder, Tommy. I think we were meant to get there from the first. I'd like you to wear that if you don't mind, and if you ever need a favor and wonder who to ask, you look at that and remember Stuart Redman, all right? Infinity means forever. Stu also got Kojak some mountain dog yummies, and Kojak eats them up quickly. He wants more, but Stu says later, "'Make manners your watchword, and everything you do,' as old Baldy would, would say." He heard his voice grow hoarse and felt tears sting his eyes. He suddenly missed Glenn, missed Larry, missed Ralph, with his cocked-back hat. Suddenly he missed them all, the ones who were gone, missed them terribly, Mother Abigail had said that they would wade in blood before it was over, and she had been right. In his heart, Stu Redman cursed her and blessed her at the same time. Together, they begin to sing the first Noel, and Stu is still feeling rather emotional. Tom says it was the best Christmas he ever had, and soon after, they were on their way again. One morning, Kojak wakes Stu and Tom with barking. Outside the tent are wolves. They sit in a rough ring around the camp, just looking. Their eyes held deep, green glints, and they all seemed to grin heartlessly. Stu fired six shots at random, scattering them. One of them leaped high and came down in a heap. Kojak trotted over to it, sniffed at it, then lifted his leg and urinated on it. Tom says that the wolves are still his, that they always will be. He's back in his trance again, that eerie state of hypnosis. Stu asks Tom if the dark man is dead. Tom replies, He never dies. He's in the wolves, laws, yes. The crows, the rattlesnake. The shadow of the owl at midnight and the scorpion at high noon. He roosts upside down with the bats. He's blind like them. Will he be back? Stu wants to know, but Tom does not answer. Can Tom see Boulder? Tom says, yes, they're waiting. Waiting for some word. Waiting for spring. Everything in Boulder is quiet. And then Stu asks about Fran. Tom's face brightens. Franny, yes, she's fat. She's going to have a baby, I think. She stays with Lucy Swan. Lucy's going to have a baby, too. But Franny will have her baby first, except. except what? The baby. But that's all Stu can get out of him because Tom is awake again. Stu began to suspect that they weren't going to be in time, that whatever Tom had seen would happen before they could arrive. The good weather broke three days before the new year. They were close enough to Boulder for it to be a bitter disappointment, even to Kojak. They were stuck for days until the 2nd of January when they could move again. On the 4th of January, they came to the place where US-6 split off from the turnpike to go its own way to Golden, and although neither of them knew it, there were no dreams or premonitions, that was the day Franny Goldsmith went into labor. They had to make their way through the tunnels, moving slow, and Boulder was so close On January 7th, Tom sees a bridge. Were they on a river somehow? Stu, who is rather grumpy and tired, notices that it's an overpass. The Golden Overpass. They were only 20 miles from Boulder, maybe less. Tom understood at last. His mouth fell open, and the comical expression on his face made Stu laugh out loud and clap him on the back. Not even the steady, dull ache in his leg could bother him now. Are we really almost home, Stu? Yes. Then they were grabbing each other, dancing around in a clumsy circle, falling down, sending up puffs of snow, pattering themselves with the stuff. Kojak looked on amazed, but after a few moments, he began to jump around with them, barking and wagging his tail. They camped that night in Golden and pushed on early the next morning. And then the snowmobile died. In Stu's excitement, he forgot to refill the gas can. So now they have to walk. They didn't get to Boulder the next day, but camped at dusk. An unsettling thought occurred as Stu crawled into his sleeping bag. They would get to Boulder, and Boulder would be empty. As empty as Grand Junction had been in Avon and Kittredge. Empty houses, empty stores, buildings with their roofs crashed in from the weight of the snow. Streets filled with the drifts. No sound but the drip of melting snow in one of the periodic thaws. He had read at the library that it was not unheard of for the temperature in Boulder to shoot suddenly up to 70 degrees in the heart of winter. But everyone would be gone, like people in a dream when you wake up, because no one was left in the world but Stu Redman and Tom Cullen. It was a crazy thought, but he couldn't shake it. He crawled out of his sleeping bag and looked north again, hoping for that faint lightning at the horizon that you can see when there is a community of people not too far distant in that direction. Surely he should be able to see something. He tried to remember how many people Glenn had guessed would be in the free zone by the time the snow closed down travel. He couldn't pull the figure out. 8,000? Had that been it? 8,000 people wasn't many. They wouldn't make much of a glow, even if all the juice was back on. Maybe, maybe you ought to get yourself some sleep and forget all this nutty stuff. Let tomorrow take care of tomorrow. Of course, after he fell asleep, he dreamed he was in Boulder, and everyone was gone, even Tom. And he called for Franny, but his only answer was the wind and that sound of the door banging slowly back and forth. The next day, they got to the Boulder city limits and celebrated. Someone had plowed the roads, and Stu and Tom had made it home. It began to snow again, and by 8 p.m. the snow was thick and hard to maneuver. 20 minutes later, A nervous voice called out in the dark. Who goes there? Stu realizes that they had posted sentries. He thinks it would be funny to come all this way and get shot by a sentry outside the table Mesa shopping center. Real funny. That's one even Randall Flagg could appreciate. He calls out that it's Stu Redman and Tom Cullen. The sentry asks what picture Stu had on his wall in the old apartment. It takes Stu a moment to remember, but then Frederick Remington... The picture was called The Warpath. The sentry is Billy Geringer, who gave them so much trouble with his hot rodding the summer before. He greets them happily, asking about Ralph and Glenn and Larry, but Stu says he doesn't know where they are, but Stu needs to get out of the cold because he and Tom are freezing. He quickly asks Billy about Fran and the baby, and Billy's enthusiasm to see them fades. The baby was born by C-section. Fran's okay. He and Tony Donahue got her some flowers from the greenhouse. She needed cheering up, not because the baby was dead, at least not yet. Billy explains, it's got the flu. It's got Captain Trips. It's the end for all of us. That's what people are saying. Franny had him on the fourth, a boy, six pounds, nine ounces. And at first he was okay. And I guess everyone in the zone got drunk. Dick Ellis said it was like VE day and VJ day all rolled into one. And then on the 6th, he just got it. Yeah, man, Billy said, and his voice began to hitch and thicken. He got it. Oh shit, ain't that some welcome home. I'm so fucking sorry, Stu. Stu begins slipping down the road again. He's going to the hospital to see his woman. So like chapter 74, chapter 75 is a continuation of Stu and Tom's journey. Nick visits Tom again to help get the medication that Stu needs to heal. Nick can't promise that Stu will survive, but if it's God's will, they'll return to Boulder together. And I find this interesting because when we first met Nick, he told Mother Abigail that he didn't believe in God, and now he's sort of another talk piece for that higher power. So it's nice seeing Nick again, and I love that he's leading Tom, even though he has to slap some sense into the other man, literally, to get him to stop being afraid and help Stu live. I always felt like Nick's journey had been cut short after he was killed in the blast, and it felt like he had so much more to do. So if we had to lose Nick, I am really glad that King brought him back to help Tom, even if it was only in Tom's dreams or subconscious, whatever it might have been. Nick saved Franny's life during the Free Zone committee meeting. He helped Tom leave Vegas and saved Stu's life. So I'm satisfied with the conclusion of Nick's story, assuming that we don't see him again within the last couple chapters that we have left. I also have to say that it probably wasn't meant to be funny, but the mental image of Tom dragging Stu around the Utah hotel lobby (laughs) while calling out, please God, please God, praying like Nick told him to, that always makes me laugh. (laughs) It's just a, it's an amusing visual image, I suppose. And I understand why King wrote Tom and Stu's journey back home. Um, It would probably be too easy just to devote a couple chapters to it without really showing what they had to deal with. You know, avalanches, the cold, a lack of shelter when they were in the mountains, crammed tunnels, wolves, crashing the snowmobile, and of course, Stu's leg, which is still technically healing. Stu making Christmas morning um, a good one for Tom was really sweet. And then seeing Tom sink into that hypnosis again, he hadn't been triggered either. So unless it had been the wolves that did it, I don't know. But something causes Tom to sink into this hypnosis. And Stu recognizes this and of course takes the opportunity to ask about the dark man. Is he dead? We've all been wondering this since Vegas was blown to bits because, you know, right before the bomb went off, Larry saw flag. Um, disappear. So was he caught in the blast or did he get away? Tom says that flag never dies. Basically, he's in everything considered dark. Wolves, crows, scorpions. When Stu asks if he'll be back, Tom doesn't answer. So that feels kind of ominous. (laughs) And of course, Stu asks about Fran. And we learn that Lucy is pregnant too, but Fran will have her baby first, obviously and the baby. Stu can't get anything else out of Tom about the baby. Between Tom's elusiveness and Stu's own nightmares about Fran and the baby, it's clear that something will go wrong or has gone wrong. Because in this chapter, we learn that Fran had the baby on January 4th. On January 9th, when they finally make it back to Boulder, Stu learns from Billy that Fran had the baby. It was breech, like Stu had dreamed and they had to perform a C-section. Fran is okay, and the baby has come down with Captain Trips. While there is still hope for the babies conceived after July 1st, most people are thinking mankind is done for. If the babies are not able to survive the flu, they're done. The species is over. So it seems as though Stu's dreams had some truth to them, a premonition that Fran's labor would not be easy, That the wolf baby that he dreamed about was somehow correct. Except instead of Flag, it's Captain Trips that's being born again. This is something far more evil and deadly in my eyes than Flag. They defeated the evil in Vegas, but it's still out there in the air. So rather than wait and get warmed up, Stu is determined to see Fran. And I'm really glad that we did get to see parts of Tom and Stu's journey. And while I felt a lot of it was filler... The Christmas morning scene was really sweet, and the scene with the wolves was well done in giving us some information via Tom, (laughs) and also learning that Flag maybe isn't completely destroyed or defeated. I think as readers, we were all getting a little impatient to get them home as Stu and Tom themselves, and when they finally came to the Boulder City Limit sign, I think... I cheered as much as they did. So if you read this book during the winter, you can probably feel how cold and tired they are. Finally getting home to a familiar place with familiar people. Is there anything better in the world? It took them over a month. Um, They left on Halloween and they got back, okay, two months. They left on Halloween and they got back on January 9th. So they just traveled and camped and dealt with all that for two months whole months. And um, the determination is there. And you got to wonder, did they have some help from a higher power? Or was it just Tom and Stu being so ready to be home? And like Stu said, he believes that they were meant to get home from the very beginning. So it's really, finally, we're back in Boulder. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, since chapter 76 is only a couple pages, we're going to cover that in this episode as well because we finally get to see Fran again, who we haven't heard from since the last chapter of book two on the border. Fran is still in the hospital, and I imagine recovering from a c-section and a post-apocalyptic world takes some time. She was awake, but slowly drifting off in that state where memories clarify magically as they begin to transmute themselves into dreams. She was going to bury her father What happened after that didn't matter, but she was going to drag herself out of the shockwave enough to get that done. The act of love. When that was done, she could cut herself a piece of strawberry rhubarb pie. It would be large, it would be juicy, and it would be very, very bitter. Fran has named her baby Peter Goldsmith Redman after her father and Stu. Marcy had come in to check on her 30 minutes before, and Fran had asked, is Peter dead yet? Not is Peter dead, but is Peter dead yet? Fran seems to know that Peter has no chance of survival now that he has Captain Trips. She's just waiting for the inevitable. Marcy says Peter is fine, but Franny had seen a more truthful answer in Marcy's eyes. The baby she had made with Jess Ryder was engaged in dying somewhere behind four glass walls. Perhaps Lucy's baby would have better luck. Both of his parents had been immune to Captain Tripps. The zone had written off her Peter now and had pinned its collective hopes on those women who had conceived after July 1st of last year. It was brutal, but completely understandable. Her mind drifted, cruising at some low level along the border of sleep, conning the terrain of her past in the landscape of her heart. She thought about her mother's parlor, where seasons passed in a dry age. She thought about Stu's eyes about the first sight of her baby, Peter Goldsmith Redman. She dreamed that Stu was with her in her room. For Fran, nothing has worked out the way it should have. And in her dream, she sees that Stu had come back with a beard. And wasn't that funny? She began to question whether it was a dream when she saw Tom Cullen behind him and Kojak. Fran pinches herself again and again until Stu tells her to stop working herself over. He's home. His limp is so severe that he's more or less stumbling to her. Stu, she cried, are you real? If you're real, come here. He went to her then and held her. So Stu and Tom and Kojak are finally home. It's been a long time, so we don't know what changes were made in Boulder. If anyone has left or how many have arrived since they've been gone. We don't know yet if Peter will survive the super flu or Lucy's baby or anyone else's. Maybe Vegas was destroyed, but Captain Trips is still out there, so maybe mankind is doomed after all. And we will find out Peter's fate next week in Chapter 77. I would love to know what you guys thought of these two chapters and how the book is starting to wind down. Um, what do you think of the idea that they've spent this most of this book scared a flag and Having to walk to Vegas to make their stand and kill him, only to have the possibility of Captain Tripps continuing to wipe out the human race anyway. It's kind of a morbid, <laughs> depressing thought, but a realistic one. So we'll have to see how things uh, end with uh, the people left in Boulder. If you guys would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens, or you can email me at The Circle Closes at gmail.com. If you are enjoying this podcast, you can leave a rating review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who's already done so. I really appreciate it. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week's episode of The Circle Opens. I hope you're all having a great week. I hope that you're all staying safe and healthy. And M-O-O-N, that spells, I'll see you next week.